Well, I hope you pay attention even from the earliest part of our service. But in case you missed it, let me read the call to worship that we heard this morning from Psalm 100. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now, we certainly sang, but understand this, this call to worship that we received this morning, it's not just a call to sing. It's a call to make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's a call to serve the Lord with gladness. And yet many of us come here this morning not feeling glad, unable to make a joyful noise because our bodies ache, our health is failing, our relationships are broken, your circumstances are uncertain, and many other things that we could think about this morning that you come bearing today that make it very difficult to serve the Lord with gladness. And yet this is a command for us. And so how are we to rejoice when we are suffering? Do you just put a smile on your face and fake it till you make it? Are we supposed to try to suppress and ignore our problems? Or are Christians supposed to be those who are optimists, who always have a glass half full kind of attitude? No. To each of these. If you think you're supposed to fake it till you make it, understand this. Rejoicing is not a show that you put on in front of others. That's hypocrisy. And it does not please God. And if you think the solution to this is to ignore your problems, well, once again, your problems are probably too great for you to ignore. And moreover, Rejoice isn't, rejoicing isn't done by emptying our mind of all that is bad, but rather rejoicing is done when we fill our mind with the good and glorious truths that God has revealed in his word. We see this even in Psalm 100. We make a joyful noise, noise to the Lord in this way, verse 3 says, know that the Lord, he is God. So it's not emptying your mind, but it's filling your mind with the truth of who God is. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And this is why we bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. So if you think the way to rejoice is by just trying to not think about the bad things, that's not it. The way to rejoice is thinking on the goodness of God. And if perhaps you think that rejoicing is only possible for the optimists who see the world through rose-colored glasses, once again, you're wrong. Rejoicing amidst trials is only possible for those who see the promises of God through the eyes of faith. And last week, Peter bursted with praise to God in the text that Jesse preached on in verses 3 through 5. It started like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the reason he is blessing God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in light of all those glorious truths that we heard last week, Peter continues this week in verse 6 saying, In this you rejoice, reminding us of the things that we heard last week. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how is it that you are to rejoice this morning in the midst of trials and tribulations? Answer, by reflecting on the good and glorious gospel truths that God has given us in his word. But before we consider those truths, I want to make two things very clear about suffering. First is this. The pain of suffering is real. Verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grief is real. Rejoicing in suffering is not a result of being robotic, as if we do not feel the sting from trials. Anyone who says otherwise is either lying or just simply doesn't know the truth. The Christian is described as being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. These two very different Emotions and feelings are true in the life of the believer, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And furthermore, not all grieving is sin. Even Jesus, in his life here on earth, he was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So as Peter provides us with reasons for why we can rejoice I want to keep in mind this morning that the pain and grief from your trials is very real. This rejoicing in the midst of sorrowing is not because, because the pain isn't there, but it's in spite of that. There is a greater joy that is had because of Jesus. And the second thing I want us to note is also in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I want us to understand that your trials may vary this morning. We are all grieving in various different degrees from one another, but, but it's so easy for us to often dismiss our suffering for one reason or another. In fact, I talked to one brother this last week who quickly dismissed his own suffering. But I want us to, to recognize that if you're feeling pain and suffering of any kind due to any trial this morning— then these truths are for you. So the, the suffering is real. The trials, they vary. And if you come in here this morning weary and heavy laden, then hear these comforting truths. Verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There is so much comfort in these few words, though for a little while. Christian, if you are suffering this morning, 
you can still rejoice because your suffering is not permanent. So what does Peter mean when he says that our suffering is just for a little while? Is he saying that our suffering will be over soon? The way a healthcare assistant might assure you that the pain of a shot will just be a brief little pinch and it'll be over before you know it. Well, if so, then why have some of us been suffering for many days now? Well, perhaps Peter meant that by it being just a little while, our suffering will be over in a week, a month, maybe even a year. And yet even some of us in the room have been suffering for years Others even for a lifetime. How can Peter say that our suffering is just for a little while when the span of your life is but toil and trouble? Well, understand this. Peter is not giving us a guarantee that you will have relief in this life. It's not the point that Peter's making here. Suffering for a little while is only made short when we compare it to that which we heard of last week, the eternal salvation that will be revealed to us at the last time. Look again at verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. I've already pointed out, but he's, he's pointing backwards. He's reminding us of, of the inheritance that we are to receive. That which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is, being, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so when he says it's a little while, it's not little because the suffering is going to be over next week. It's little because we have this eternal inheritance that is far greater than the trials that we will ever face. Let me illustrate it this way. Consider the size of the earth. None of us would say the earth is small, especially if you're traveling cross-country. But in comparison, when you consider the size of the earth to that of the sun, well, the earth is tiny. And all the more so when you consider the, the size of the earth to that of the vastness of space, what is earth but a tiny speck of sand in the middle of the ocean? so too we can rejoice because our suffering will last just for a little while. And we can say that because we have an eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to us the last time. Listen to how James described the length of life. James 4.14, he says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So though your life might be full of all kinds of trials, know this, your life will soon be over. Paul was one who was well acquainted with suffering, and he describes his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11 and following. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is still the daily pressure on me and anxiety for the churches. 
Paul knew suffering. In fact, he knew suffering far more than the vast majority of people ever will. In fact, the Lord himself told Ananias that he would show Paul how much he would suffer for his name's sake. And yet hear how Paul described his suffering when compared to eternity in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, take comfort in this. Your suffering will soon be over. The heaviest burdens and afflictions will soon be removed. I want us to see with the eyes of faith what the Lord showed John of what was to come. In Revelation 21, he saw this. Then I saw the new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have to look forward to. So, even in the midst of your suffering, rejoice, for you will only suffer for a little while longer. But... We would still prefer not to suffer if it could be helped, right? After all, why suffer if it could be avoided? Well, according to Peter, your sufferings are necessary. Listen to this in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And why is the suffering necessary? Verse 7, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're suffering this morning, rejoice because your suffering has a purpose. Your trials are not random. From a human perspective, suffering appears to be completely random. Take, for example, a car wreck. People do not intentionally wreck their cars, and yet they happen all the time. And so we call them accidents, car accidents. Sure, someone still is responsible for the wreck, but it was not planned. It just happened by accident. And those affected by the accident seem to have simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so we might play these games in our mind and thinking, well, if only I would have gotten out of the house 10 minutes earlier or later. If only when I, I would have taken a different route to the store. Then maybe I wouldn't have gotten in that wreck. It's not just car wrecks for that matter. It's not just the car accident. All kinds of sufferings seem random, random from our limited vantage point. No one plans on getting sick. And yet it happens. No one makes 
a goal to have financial ruin. And yet it happens. No one intends for their reputation to be destroyed. And yet it happens. No one intends for their marriage to end in divorce. And yet it happens. From our limited human perspective, your suffering might seem random and unavoidable. Happens just like a a chance. But there is nothing random about your suffering this morning because God is meticulously sovereign over everything. When something appears random to us, we need to understand this. It has been planned by God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. What is a lot? It's like the rolling of a dice. It's like the flip of a coin. Completely random and unpredictable from our vantage point. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Understand this. There is no such thing as a coincidence. There is no such thing as chance. And your suffering is not random. Your suffering was planned with a purpose by God. Let me give us two brief examples of this. You know Joseph's story very well from the the book of Genesis. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, an evil act of his brothers, and yet this is what he said. At the very end of Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So Joseph's brothers, they, they devised an evil plan. They meant evil against Joseph, but God, too, had a plan, and it was good, and it was to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And even more clearly than this is the cross. At the crucifixion, none of the disciples would have said, yeah, this is good. But instead, they all fled. But after the resurrection, who could possibly miss the wonderful work that God was up to? Men were up to something wicked when they planned the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yet God was up to something good when he planned the death of his son to atone for the sins of those who believe. The reality of God's planning everything, even our suffering for a purpose, might cause some of us grief this morning. And for those who may question the goodness of God in all of this, I implore you, wrestle with this truth. Listen to James, and he might help us a little bit for those who may wrestle with this. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say to you when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not evil in what he does. So as you come to think and meditate about God's sovereignty, even in our suffering, wrestle with what it means for him to have 
providence in this area, for him to be sovereign and rule over even the little atoms that cause suffering in your life. Knowing that our suffering is planned by God acts as a ballast when we are in the midst of a storm. If you are suffering and you believe that your suffering is just a random coincidence, chance, then you have no reason to rejoice this morning in your suffering. In fact, you have every reason to be terrified. But there is such comfort in knowing that your God rules over all creation. And there is comfort that bursts with joy when you know that God is your loving Father who knows how to care for his child. And we know For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It does not mean that everything is going to be good in life. But all things are working together for good for those who love him. The Lord knows that your sufferings are necessary to that end. He is like a surgeon who cuts the body. Now, under other circumstances, a cut on the body would not be good. If you are in the kitchen and you you accidentally slip and you cut your finger, that's not good. Or worse, if your enemy does harm to you with a knife, that is not good. But when the scalpel is in the hand of the skilled surgeon, he too intends to cut your flesh. But when the surgeon is doing the cutting, it is a good thing because the surgeon has a plan for the good of the patient. And so, Christian, rejoice in your suffering, because your suffering was purposed by your heavenly Father for your good. And what is that purpose? Peter tells us. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And here's the purpose. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be Bound. Christian, rejoice in your suffering because your suffering is acting to prove your faith. Peter tells us this, that the, the genuine faith that the believer has is more precious than the most pure gold. Let's consider for just a moment what he's trying to show us here. The value of gold is constant, unlike most of the things in the world. Our dollar does not have the same value that it once had. In fact, the value of most things quickly diminishes over time. Cars and computers quickly lose their value. Homes fall into disrepair and require the constant upkeep. But gold, in contrast, is precious because unlike most other things and even most other metals, it does not corrode. It is incorruptible. And when gold is purified and polished, oh, it is useful and beautiful. We all know something of the preciousness of gold. But Peter tells us this, the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Now we just established that gold doesn't perish, that it doesn't corrode, that it doesn't lose its value, and yet Peter seems to tell us otherwise. That's because Peter knows something that most people fail to grasp. That is, The things of this world will not last forever. Listen to how Jesus taught us. 
He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, neither thieves break in and steal. And James tells us a little bit more about what is going to happen to the, the precious metals that we have on that last day. He says this to those who are rich. He says, their gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against them and will eat their flesh like fire. So evidently, Gold does perish, and diamonds do not last forever. But our inheritance in heaven is quite different, remember last week when Jesse preached to us. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And how is it that we are to obtain this inheritance of such great value? Through faith. It is kept in heaven for you by God's power, who are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So why is faith so precious, even more precious than gold? Because faith is the ticket for receiving our imperishable inheritance. Gold cannot buy it. Good works cannot earn it. This inheritance is only to be received by faith in the finished work of Christ. This is why faith is so precious. So this brings us back to the Question we asked at the very beginning. Why should we rejoice in trials? Because trials are proving that our faith is genuine. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, I'm going to skip over this end dash here, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found. We must understand that not all faith is genuine. Growing up, I watched antique roadshow with my parents a lot. And from time to time, to time these people, they, they bring their treasures, these antiques to these, these experts to find out whether their treasure was, was worth more than they could imagine. But from time to time, a person would bring this precious antique to the expert only to find out that their treasure was a cheap replica, a knockoff, a phony. And these supposed antiques that were once so precious, now they find are not even worth selling at a garage sale, let alone an auction. Faith is precious, understand this, more precious than gold, but not all faith is genuine. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Next week, we'll be digging into verses 8 and 9. And these verses serve to show us what genuine faith looks like. But for now, just listen to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what genuine faith does. It rejoices with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so, brothers and sisters, though you do not see Jesus, do you love him? Though you do not now see him, do you believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Now, these are good questions to ask. But answering the question correctly is not the same as answering the question honestly, is it? 
And you might even think that you're answering the question honestly, but how often do people make a good start in the faith only to not end the race well? Jesus describes such a person in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Looks like genuine faith. And yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The heart of the person with this heart does not know what it means to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And not everything that glitters is gold. So how does one test what appears to be gold? You put it in the fire. And this is exactly what happens for those whose faith is being tested to make sure that what is there is not just the appearance of faith, but it is the true and genuine faith. And this is exactly what happened to Job. I'm going to read through this quickly. The references are going to be there on the screen, but Job was tested. He was accused by Satan of not having genuine faith. In verse 9, it says, that Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? You put a hedge around him. And his house and all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. You know what happens after that. The Lord allows Satan to test Job. From there, Job lost his property and his children. And how did he respond? Job 1, 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. I wonder how many of us would worship God in the midst of such trials. And he said, naked have I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet, Satan wasn't done testing Job. He came to the Lord again a second time and brought his faith into question. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hands. Only spare his life. And you know what happens after that. He afflicts Job, and he becomes sick, and his body is covered with sores. And to this, his wife says to Job, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive both good from God? Shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Oh, how precious is the faith of those who withstand fiery trials 
and their faith is shown to be true. When you are joyful and accept the plundering of your property, you show that you have a better possession and an abiding one, more so than the the one you have here on earth. When your home is divided because of Christ, when father is against you or son is against you, mother or daughter is against you, and you still follow Jesus because you love him more than these, you demonstrate that you have genuine faith because it is tested by fire. When you are on your deathbed rejoicing with David because you believe that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, you demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. You may suffer the loss of everything, but if the fire, if through the fire your faith remains, rejoice, for you still have what is most precious, and that is genuine faith. I love the closing course of Luther's battle hymn. That good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And what is the truth that makes it possible for one to let everything go? His kingdom is forever. And so Christian, are you willing to leave everything so that you might have Christ? Are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, for many of us, if we were honest, the plain answer is no. Because we love what's here below. We love our homes. And we love our families. And we love our lives. And we would hate to see these things go. But Jesus said, whoever loves his life and loses it, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so this brings us to the second purpose of testing that I think we can draw from our text. In verse 7, he talks about our faith being tested. The way gold that is most precious is tested by fire. And so too, today we can rejoice because your suffering is purifying you. Though gold is precious, it is far more precious once it is refined by fire. Gold in its raw form, well, it doesn't have beauty, does it? Not in the same way that pure gold has. And it doesn't have the same usefulness either. So gold must be tested by fire so that the the impurities and the dross and all that is unclean might be removed from what is good and valuable. So too, our faith must be tested so that the impurities, the dross of our faith, that is the sin in our life, may be removed. Impurities such as a love for worldly treasures. Impurities such as anxiety over the goods in our homes that are perishing. Impurities such as doubts in the goodness of God. Impurities such as doubts in the promise of God. Ultimately, anything in our life that does not put Christ as supreme above all is a sin that must be purified. And it is purified by the trial of fire. 
And so the crucible of affliction is doing this in our lives. It is burning off those impurities. This is why James says, in very similar language, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Tests and trials, they act as the means by which God sanctifies his church and makes us holy. So too, read it again, we read it earlier, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is preparing us as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The fire, yes, it proves our faith, but moreover, it is purifying your faith. So saints, rejoice. Because one day your faith will be sight. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, here's the ultimate purpose, here's the result of that testing, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are grieving this morning, you too can rejoice because your suffering will result in God's praise. Here's the ultimate purpose of your suffering. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you might even say that the chief end of suffering is so that you would glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the ultimate aim of your suffering. It is for God's glory. The purpose of genuine faith is so that you would love God. That's what we talked about. That's what we're going to see next week. Genuine faith result in love for God. So as your faith is tested, it is going to be demonstrated when you love him more than these things that you are losing. Moreover, the purpose of these tests and trials is so that you would have a pure faith so that you would love God once again more than anything else including your own life that is being consumed by these trials we know that life is full of suffering this week seems this seems more true than others for many of us and the sufferings from our trials produce real pain. The sufferings produce anguish and tears. But for the Christian, this is not a tragedy. This is the tragedy, brothers and sisters. The true tragedy is that there are many who do not long for Christ. The true tragedy is shown when a person in this present world loves these things more than Christ, and he would sooner live another year than die and be with Christ face to face, that is a tragedy. The true tra tragedy is for those who would say, Lord, do not come yet. Another year. Another five years. Another ten years. That is a tragedy. 
that we would love this world more than we love God. But the saint who is tested by fire, his faith is proven. And his faith is purified. Because in all these sufferings, we long for Christ. We long to see him face to face. We long for our sufferings to be brought to an end. Our brother Tom, before he stepped into glory, repeatedly told his family that he was ready. That is wonderful evidence of genuine faith in the face of suffering for the saints to say, I'm ready. I want to see him face to face. Do you have such faith that you long to see Jesus so that you might praise him and honor him and glorify him for what he has done? If the answer is no, look at the cross where his glory was most clearly demonstrated in its brightest form. Look at the cross where the love of God was put on display Look at the cross where death was destroyed. Look at the cross where sins were paid for, for those who believe. Look at the cross where you have been reconciled to your maker. I don't know how anyone can cope with suffering if they do not understand what happened at the cross. This is only possible for those who embrace Christ by faith. So brothers and sisters, Believe in him this morning and rejoice. Our Lord gave us this promise. He said, surely I am coming soon. And so we should say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, this is our prayer. That you would come soon. We long for our faith to be sight. We long for our suffering to be brought to an end. But more than these, we we want to be with you. And so, Lord, would you continue to purify us? Give us holy desires for you. I pray that we would taste and see even now your goodness so that we might long for you more and more. But until that day, Lord, I pray that you would continue to purify us and continue to prove our faith so that we too might rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And Lord, we do ask that you would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.